Nonprofit leaders are never short on great program ideas. In fact, I generally find that way too many leaders have what we call bright, shiny object syndrome. And for some reason, when they're intact by this syndrome, they somehow forget that they actually have other programs already and that most of those <clears throat> are underfunded. I'm not sure how they get that blind spot, but I've seen it countless times. Today, we're going to take it bird by bird. And if you don't know the reference, Google the author Anne Lamont, L-A-M-O-N-T for the reference. And we're going to think about program design in a strategic way because it is not all instinctual. And in fact, it can't be, especially if you're looking for funding, which of course you are. There's a science and an art to it. We start with strategy for your organization that then drives programs that support that strategy. Some of these programs exist. Maybe you need know that there's a gap you need to fill. If you did your strategy work well, you engaged some key stakeholders, including funders, and ideas surfaced in that process. Maybe you have a potential funder whose interests are aligned with your mission, and that funder has an interest in funding your particular kind of program. Wouldn't that be swell? If not, what's your next step? How do you take your idea and make it real? My guest today has that balance between art and science when it comes to program design and also has a background in development. So she's designed programs and then found funding for them. If you're driving while you're listening to this podcast, you might want to pull over because you might need to take some notes. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Lindsay Hoffman is a nonprofit consultant who specializes in helping organizations with strategic planning, program planning, and fund development. She has 14 years of experience with nonprofits, including five years as a senior vice president of program development at Seedco, a national community development organization, and is managing director of institutional development at GMHC. She's designed and managed about two dozen programs, mostly in the human services and policy advocacy spaces. She knows a lot about launching new programs and winning big grants. She's directly secured over $145 million for nonprofit causes. This is a brain we must pick today. Lindsay, I'm really glad you're here. Oh, I'm happy to be with you, Joan. Um, oftentimes, people who are in development are in development, and people who are in programs are in programs. But that's actually not how you started, is it? Well, I think I started my career in the way that a lot of nonprofit professionals do, and that was at a series of small organizations where everyone is wearing all of the hats. So I was um, hired to manage a program, but then soon took on grant writing and then suddenly had a, a long title that was program and fundraising development supervisor manager. Yeah, doing, doing both. What kind of small organization did you start with, Lindsay? Well, right out of college, I met a few people who had an idea for an organization. Um, they were two former car dealers in New Hampshire who wanted to start a car loan nonprofit. And uh, I helped them get the idea off the ground and then helped them do all of the fundraising. So they were really, they had a lot of ideas and I helped them um, uh, frame them and sell them to foundations and then to a few 
government funders. So as you heard me describe Lindsay's background, do not be deceived. She's had experience with big old nonprofits, but also with small nonprofits. And so her experience will be useful regardless of the size of your organization. So that's yet another reason she has a valuable um, perspective to offer us today. So Lindsay, let's talk about how program ideas get generated. Um, Do we have like a tail wagging the dog thing going on? Like programs are started first and then you say, oh goodness, we need a strategy. Or is it the other way around? I'm, I'm curious about what you generally see. Well, I think what often happens is one of two things. I mean, for one, you know, ideas are always percolating around an, any nonprofit organization. So, you know, your staff are noticing problems that need to be solved. You're paying attention to the news. You know, stuff is being talked about at your staff meetings. And and you, you start to glom on to these ideas that are aligned with your mission and that you think you could um, pursue as a program. And then, then perhaps you create a strategic plan and you set big strategic goals for yourselves. And, uh, and then suddenly it's time to actually turn those big strategic goals into program ideas and then into funding opportunities and grant proposals. Or there's this lovely scenario where a funder approaches you and says, I love your organization. You seem to have great ideas. Submit a proposal for a program. And, and it's in one, either of those moments, either after a strategic planning process or you know, at the moment that a funder asks you for a proposal that you realize, oh, wow, I need to, I need to solidify you know, these, these ideas that have been swirling into um, something concrete. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is, of course, where people get kind of panic-stricken, right? It's, I have this really good idea. And let's let's not even talk about the funder who says, I think this would make a great program for your organization and it has no business being part of your organization because it doesn't fit in with the strategy. Let's leave that aside for a minute, the follow the money thing. Let's put that over, over there. And let's say that this is in fact a case where um, the funder or your, whether it's a funder who has said, gee, if you took this on, this is something we might consider funding, or you just determine it's so in line with your strategic plan and there's such a gap, you've got to fill it right? Um, there's an aversion to planning in the nonprofit space around programs, isn't there? And uh, is it just time or do nonprofit leaders not see it as valuable? What do you think's going on there? You know, I think something really interesting happens at these moments. There's a lot of excitement in these moments. You know, there's a lot of momentum. When a funder approaches you and asks for a proposal, it's so exciting. And you are you know, you're a client about the ideas that you've generated. You um, want to, uh, you know, push your staff forward and rally everyone around the idea. You don't want to lose your momentum. Um, and also, I think that there's, you know, at that moment in time, you're not absolutely sure that this program will be funded. So you don't want to waste your time digging into the details of the nitty gritty about exactly how this thing will work out. Um, so there's a, there's a reluctance to waste time. There's a reluctance to lose momentum. I think also what happens is that everyone becomes um, 
reluctant to acknowledge how little they've thought through the program idea. So <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of like the, um, I'm just old enough to be able to make a reference to like a Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, you know, movie where they say, I've got a barn, I've got a broom, let's put on a show. Like the, that the excitement, the passion and the urgency of the need completely um, obscure the, the what will it actually take. Yeah. And I mean, you want to be seen as an expert in those moments. And, you know, you you, you feel, you know, that you are an expert in those moments. So taking a step back and saying, okay, guys, really, you know, first of all, is this a good idea? And how would this work? And what are the details that we need? What are the questions we need to ask? And what are, what are our assumptions that need to be questioned and, and picked apart? And it's, yeah. It's a very it's a very tense moment, and I think what ends up happening, and this is maybe why I became interested in it, and why I became so focused on figuring out, you know, on you know how to make this work in organizations, and why I also love digging in at these moments, is because I I think what often happens is the idea gets handed off to a grant writer, or someone in your development department who's asked to do the internet research necessary and do the wordsmithing exactly to, to flesh this case. out and to make it real. And, and, yeah. and anyone who's done any grant writing knows how awkward it is to be writing a grant for a program that hasn't been, that has no meat on the bones yet. And it's your job to put the meat on the bones, but you don't, it's, it's just an awkward, very tense moment that I've, I've noticed it in the organization. And it's, it's not, um, are, are you suggesting that it's, that it's not the grant writer's uh, responsibility to put the meat on the bones, that, the, that it should come more fleshed out to a grant writer? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I Absolutely. thought you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Is that a grant writer might, you know, iterate back with a program person and say, look, you gave me some of this information and I feel like if we knew a little bit more about X, Y, and Z, the case would be stronger and they might work together to figure mm -hmm. out how to fill in those blanks, right? But, right, but you, can't, you can't come up with a program idea and say, uh, you, grant writer, fill in the blanks, make the case and get, show me the money. That, that it doesn't it doesn't work that way, and I think far too often program people assume that grant writers are going to do a lot more work um, in that regard than they than they actually should. Yeah, I mean, one's imagination can only take you so far during the proposal writing process. <laughs> <laughs> and. Yeah, that's total. That's totally true. So, talk to me about why. Um, why planning? Uh, so why do you see planning as sort of program planning and design as important? I mean, you're, you're digging into it right now, sort of in a professional development way by taking a class on program, you know, sort of learning more deeply about program design and the science of it. So clearly you, you have a very deep um, commitment to why it's important. So t talk to us about why it's so important. Well, for one, it results in better proposals. I mean, you know, for that grant writer who would otherwise be, 
you know, just using the thesaurus and, you know, all of the internet research that they can dig up and, you know, mushing it all together into five pages of text, you know, it, that, that document becomes transformed when it actually is the product of real planning, you know, conversations, you know, across the program staff, conversations with the participants that you're serving, you know, looking at, you know, laying out exactly, you know, what is going to be offered in this program, what you think the immediate results are going to be, what you hope the long-term results are going to be, and this is how it all logically ties together in this way that, you know, that someone can really, you know, wrap their hands around and, and, and you know, feel confident about supporting. Well, I, I also just think that, that, that the clients you serve or the community you advocate for deserve that and your donors, um, d- donors deserve that as well. So take us through, take us through, you know, not a, you know, certainly, you know, not a huge organization, but it, you know, what's this, what's the recipe? So I have an idea. Either I think it's highly fundable. A program officer has said, I think this is a really great idea. You can submit a proposal or you have an idea that such and such a place might fund it. What's, what, are the, what are the steps you recommend that people take? Sure. Well, I have a quick win um, strategy for those moments when you have two weeks to turn an idea into something tangible enough for a funder. And so two weeks might actually be a, a luxurious amount of time know, in some settings, right? No, I've seen, yeah. Yeah, certainly I've seen shorter. And, um, you know, that's when you just, you need to hire grant writers who have real endurance, who can stay up all night. And <laughs> when you have real endurance, because it, yeah. But I do think anything, anything less than two weeks becomes um, just, extremely sloppy it's it's really hard for that yeah. th- that to be of the quality mm-hmm. that's necessary mm-hmm. okay so i'm ready for yeah. i'm sure that everybody's ready yeah. to hear about how to do this in two weeks okay so so the two-week version of this um revolves around this tool that might it really might make some of your listeners groan but i think other people will be excited about it you know and and the tool is the logic model and and I'm sure, you know, many people have had to generate logic models for the sake of government or foundation proposals before. But it turns out logic models are a really, really good planning tool to help everybody um, get their ideas out onto one piece of paper, you know, and, and figure out whether this program, you know, this, this integrated set of services, you know, in, the, in pursuit of, a, of a, a goal for your participants, or a goal for the world, it's a really helpful tool to, to, to drive through that, that rushed planning process. So, um, okay. So you're going to tell me what, a so you're going to pretend to, yeah. you're going to pretend that I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. A logic model. I, you lost me after the word logic. Okay. And the word model sounds really, uh, uh, scientific and it sounds like it's a spreadsheet and uh, I think you just caused some people to break out in a cold sweat. So make that easier for them. <laughs> well, we're at an extra disadvantage because it's such a visual product. And, you know, this being a podcast, uh, I cannot sketch this out for you in the way I might 
um, yeah, if we were in person. But, but in general, the logic model is, this, is a horizontal chart, and it lays out all of the basics about your program. So it, it, the most simple ones have four columns, and all of the inputs that you need from your, for your program, all of the staff you're going to need, the space, the funding that you're going to need, the other tools and resources are going to be on the left. In the middle, you lay out all of the services you'll provide, the activities, the things you're actually going to do. And then um, towards the... So, wait a minute. so the first column is, so just, to, just because we have to kind of create this picture for mm -hmm. people, the first column is the what you need. Mm-hmm. And they, it's sometimes the referred to as inputs or resources. Good. Okay. And then the second column is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And what do we, does that have a, does that have a special name too, Lindsay? Your activities or your service. Oh, activities. That's a good word. Yeah. I like that one. That, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then that third column is, are your short term results. So what are you expecting will immediately happen? What positive things do you expect will immediately happen after you do the things you're planning on doing? Um, how do you define, how do we define immediately? Well, that's, do you create that horizon on your model? That, that's where you know these these are a combination of art and science, and you can define that however however feels right. I mean, um, if you are if, you know if this is for a job training program, then one of those short term results might be you know graduating with a certificate, you know graduating with some um, you know f with some new skills, or that short term result might be uh, gaining a job. And then all the way on the right-hand column are your longer-term outcomes. So um, what is the ultimate point of this? Like what, you know, this is where you might list um, your organization's broader strategic goal that you're ultimately pursuing. So all of the services and activities, all of your short-term results are really in, in the service of some, some bigger long-term outcome. Okay. So it's, it's sort of like an, sort of a, a kind of an outline. Um, and should we, look, should we as an, take an example of a, an organization, some, something relatively straightforward? Um, uh, you can keep talking if you like, but let's think about, is there a specific, there's, is there an example we could use to bring the logic model to life that isn't overly complex? Sure. I can, I can share um, one example of a time that I've, I've taken an organization through this. Um, I, I worked for GMHC for a long time, and, and we were approached by a funder by the city to launch a new job training program for people living with HIV. And Great. Okay. That's, okay. I get mm -hmm. this. I'm with you so far. And, and the thing about the logic model is that you can start in any piece of it. So, you know, wherever you know, wherever you know what you want. So, you know, in this case, we knew that our ultimate goal was to help people with HIV to gain jobs. So we can write that on the logic model in big black marker. Um, and this works best on a big white bird board with a, with a group of people. Um, but we know, okay, we want our clients to gain jobs at a living wage. And we write that in, in the short-term outcome column. And from there, you work you work forwards and backwards to figure out, okay, what, what services and activities do we need to provide in order to reach that outcome? And, and this is where you know, the planning process 
it, it really pays to be working with a group of people who are knowledgeable about your work and to, um, to let the conversation um, diverge, you know, and, and, and let the ideas go, you know, be brainstormed broadly, uh, knowing that eventually it will converge back towards um, some decisions and some things that really make sense. So, um, so in the case of the job training program, we know that we want everyone to get jobs. And um, so everyone's just started listing the services that we need to provide to get there. We need to provide some um, interview coaching. We need to provide access to a clothing closet for people who um, don't have uh, great clothes for interviews. We need to um, develop some relationships with employers so that we can help um, people get into the door and, and get that interview more easily. Uh, and, and so these things just get listed. And, and eventually, you know, you have this fully populated uh, chart. And you can, you can use that chart as a way of, you know, introducing your program quickly to new audiences. You can use that chart to check your, you know, to check your logic and to make sure that, you know, the, the, the services that you've listed really will produce the outcomes that you're hoping for. Or, or conversely, which is one, a place where I think that nonprofits underestimate because they work from a scarcity model, is make sure that the resource column, what you need, is, <clears throat> is legit, yeah. right? Yeah. Is that, <laughs> is legit. And it isn't like, oh, well, we'll just do that on top of everything else we're doing because um, we think the grant is only going to be X and they may not cover staff time. Mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like far too often in designing new programs, um, people are tend to sell themselves short on the resource piece. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there are... That's, you know, figuring out what you need to run your program is a big part of program planning. Because also, you know, if anyone who's, who's looking at this, any funder who's reviewing your proposal is going to do their own logic check of it. And they're, they're going to figure out whether, you've, whether this is believable. In, in the situation, what about in a situation, Lindsay, when somebody says, we would like to fund, and I don't know if this happens, so you'll tell me. When somebody says, we would, we're really interested in this job training program, the city's interested in this job training program for people living with HIV, um, and we would, we would fund you to do that, do they usually put a price tag on it that you have to work towards, or do they give you the option to really build um, that list of resources and then sort of put price tags on it? Usually in that conversation, they give you a hint about how much they might consider granting you so that you, yeah, just to keep okay. to manage your expectations and keep you from, you know, <laughs> going a little too big. Okay. That's, that's useful. And, and because I think that oftentimes funders is, is maybe I'm wrong, but I think there are oftentimes fun, when funders will, th will give you a hint of that number and then you do your logic model and you're like, we can't do it for that amount of money. Yeah, that is tough. And what do you do then? Then you have to sit, then, then I presumably you have to say, if we want to do this, we have to actually um, identify other sources of funding. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times people take the money they're given and then they, then they cut down the list of resources and the logic no longer flows because they can't deliver the activities and the outcomes because they don't have the resources, right? It's really true. I think the hunger for any amount of money often clouds uh, judgment yep. at these moments. And, 
And it is really tempting to just say, well, whatever, we'll do, you know, we'll do what we can for $10,000, even though it's absolutely $100,000 that we need to do and it's, yeah, I think that people back themselves into very tough mm-hmm. circumstances in this way. I do. Um, we're talking with Lindsay Hoffman, who's a nonprofit consultant. She specializes in helping organizations with strategic planning, program planning, and fund development. Um, she's got this really interesting hybrid of dealing with both fund development, program planning, strategy, and has really been deep diving into almost the science of program uh, design. Um, so uh, having a conversation about how to set yourself up to succeed when you have have a really good idea and you want to bring it to life. Um, Lindsay, you, um, you talk about building program design into your ongoing work. That's different from, gee, we have this new idea or a funder comes to you and says, based on your strategic plan, it would be really interesting if you did job training work for people living with HIV. What do you mean when you talk about um, program design, building program design processes into your ongoing work? Well, I think it is... um... So there is a growing field called human-centered design, and it is, um, and I, I think that the world is starting to understand that um, that we can use the same processes that have made software designers really good at designing software that just that suits people's needs and that is efficient and that um, works with the way that people want to work. Uh, and in the same way that you know, industrial designers design great kitchen appliances to help us get done exactly what we need to get done and that fit well in a kitchen and that complement our lifestyles, that these same principles can be applied to social, the social sector um, and, and specifically human services type programs, but also you know, anywhere, any type of work where we're trying to have an, an outcome on you know, an individual or on a community. And there, there is you know, real training that you, can, that you can get in human-centered design and in applying these principles in a nonprofit organization. I'll tell you, very few organizations um, invest a lot of money in, in, in doing this um, professionally and perfectly. I, I know that there, um, I recently attended a webinar with the One Acre Fund which is an international organization that supports farm workers around the world. And the One Acre Fund is very well funded. They have a revenue model that um, they've earned revenue from the work that they do, and then they use all donor money to spend on innovation. So in addition to their program teams and their development teams, they actually have an innovation team. And that innovation team is tasked with uh, infusing all the work they do with opportunities for innovation, for, you know, generating new ideas, prototyping, you know, new programs, you know, testing them, and then scaling them. And it's... That's dreamy. That's just dreamy. (laughs) Dreamy. I think they are the only organization that pulls that off. Uh, So, so yeah, so I've been thinking about how, how to take some of, take, take that as inspiration and incorporate that more into ongoing operations so so that you're not stuck in that two-week time crunch of 
fleshing it out an idea and gathering the information that you didn't gather before and um, and you know pulling together a proposal uh, that that might not accurately reflect what your participants really need or you know might not be the absolute best use of your um, time and energy pilot programs probably fall into this category correct I mean you know st- you can launch a huge thing and get it wrong, or you can start small and work out the kinks, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And and you can even smart, start smaller than a pilot program. Um, so one of the, one of the um, concepts in human-centered design is um, to invest time in, in ideation, you know, just the, the gathering of ideas and, and, and like I said, generally in every nonprofit, you know, ideas are swirling. You know, people are talking about things, but they're not necessarily capturing these ideas in a systematic way, in a way that they can pull on later. And I do find that almost all organizations I've ever worked with don't systematically speak and talk to enough, talk to their participants enough. So there's not enough, um, you know, mm. uh, like real honest discussion in a way that you're really listening to their experiences with their program, what they're looking for from you, you know, what you could be doing better, and, and what ideas had you never even considered but, um, but would solve a, a real need. So involving participants in this ideation process is, is, is a big part of, um, of becoming a more innovative and creative organization. Well, and that's p- part of what you're talking when you when you use a, a piece of jargon like human-centered mm-hmm. design. It means it means what programs and services should I provide, for example, to in GMHC's language to people living with HIV and AIDS, and if I don't actually engage the humans I serve in program design, I'm I'm. I'm kind of missing a big piece, right? Absolutely. Even in the case of the job training program with GMHC, you know, we we did several two-hour logic model uh, facilitation activities, and and we pulled together this proposal. And it wasn't until we started talking to the potential participants that we really put our fingers on the services that would be necessary to make this work. You know, things that we just had not foreseen at all. It turns out that there's this glitch in the benefits application process that uh, that makes it makes uh, people who are currently on um, HIV AIDS benefits in New York City really reluctant to take on employment because they're afraid they'll lose the benefits and, and the application process is so onerous they'll never be able to get back on them if they get sick again in the future. And it's it was that it was that, it was the nervousness around the application process that ended up being the linchpin in this program. But we would have, yeah, talking to the participants, centering our program design around what they needed and what they were feeling and their experiences was absolutely key to making this work. And you can't, you can't do that quickly in a, in a two-hour logic modeling session. Um, it, it needs to be part of a pattern of... Um, asking questions and listening to people and, and involving them in the conversation. So in that example, Lindsay, it sounds like that was actually a really huge obstacle. 
a, a really huge obstacle to being able to secure outcomes that the city would be looking for. Is there a simple way you could explain to me how you moved that boulder out of the center of the road? Well, it, um, we ended up gathering that information before we submitted the proposal, and and we knew then that we had to weave that into the proposal, and, and there was a big section on what we would need from the city in order to make all this work, and that this, is, this, is, uh, this needs to be a collaboration where you help us um, solve the problems that you can on your end. So you would, um, you're not getting off of this podcast without... Um, telling us, did you actually secure the funding you needed for the program? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we did. It, it was a. It was a real. It was a real success because this the city had not um, funded anything like that before, and they gave GMHC one point two million to launch this. There are some people drooling <laughs> who are listening to that. Yeah. Um, that's um, so. When you talked about. There are things you can do that are smaller than pilot programs. Is that what you mean by the with the ideation process? I just wanted to make sure I was clear about something because I think of pilot programs as kind of the smallest entity in program design. But you're saying that there's that this process is the earlier step to that. Well, yes. There's a there's a way that you can bounce around ideas with participants and gather their reactions to concepts. Um, gather their reactions to what individual activities um, are like, and and uh, and use that to inform, you know, an eventual pilot program. But in the meantime, you've gathered so much information around um, what might work, and uh, and what you know what people need the most. What if a funder says we want? We want you to build out the whole program. We're going to give you $1.2 million. And you're like, you know what? I'm not 100% sure. And I think we need to do a pilot to fine-tune our thinking on this. Do funders appreciate that kind of a concept? Because I also think that um, pilot programs cost money too. And... So how, how does a pilot program fit into a program design or a proposal to do something full bore? That's such an interesting question because I've, it's so, um, nonprofits are so reluctant to, to make that decision. I mean, if, if what, if what you're suggesting is that you know, GMHC would turn down the 1.2 million and say, why don't you give us 100,000 at first and we'll test a few things, we'll test a few things, we'll get back to you. I'm sure it'll work out well, but, you know, just put a pause on the the, the million dollar part of it. You know? <laughs> I think, yeah, I, you know, as I listen to myself say, ask that question, I feel like the answer is somewhat self-evident, which is in that $1.2 million proposal, you would be unwise not to have very early milestones and evaluation points at which you would then, sh you know, make shifts based on what you learn early on that, um, that would in increase the likelihood of you meeting the outcomes that got you the 1.2 to begin with. Is that the answer to that question? Yes. Yeah. And being able to tell foundations that you are very prepared to, test and refine and, and make, um, make course corrections. 
you know, as you see necessary. I mean, foundations want to know that you are nimble, that you're paying attention. You know, this the the blind you know pursuit of um, some key performance indicators that you wrote into your proposal uh, is not exciting to foundations anymore. They want to know that that your participants are a part of this, that you're listening to them, and that you are, um, yeah, that, that, that this is, that these things are being designed out of real empathy for people, and, um, and that you are well-managed enough to, um, to, to change things up. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of big takeaways here. One is, you know, take that piece of jargon called human-centered design and change it into, you may be an executive director who is an expert in, you know, the world of HIV or in the world of equine therapy. But if you are not listening to the people on those horses or the people who live every day with HIV, then you're not an expert at Mm -hmm. all, right? Right. Right, you just you're not a fully fleshed out three dimensional expert. I mean, that's one thing I definitely heard. The second thing I heard is um, that there is a way to spend a relatively short period of time to brainstorm the key things you need to be able to hand someone to write a good grant, and um, and that there are, are you know, I, I, there are plenty of resources in the world of looking at logic models as well as human-centered design that are worth taking a look at. And the last thing is, you know, the, the places where, you know, don't get, let's not get started on, uh, you know, how overhead is perceived, but like strategy and innovation in nonprofits, which would of course be categorized as overhead, <clears throat> you could argue is the most important work that gets done as a no- at a nonprofit because it drives the execution, it drives the outcomes, it drives everything that happens with your organization that's good for the people you serve. So, um, um, Lindsay, I think this was super helpful to people as they think about this, and and I think you've um, cut it into enough bite-sized pieces that you didn't make it seem overly daunting to, in fact, engage in some kind of planning. And I also think that there's an object lesson in here for people who have program ideas that you just don't give a big idea to a grant writer and say, okay, you can take it from here. <laughs> I'm so glad. I think it is important to know that that both very large, well-funded organizations have these same obstacles to overcome as smaller organizations, that this is not necessarily tied to how much funding you have, that this is, this is sort of a, it's a mindset issue in a lot of organizations. That is absolutely, it has to be valued. That's right. And for people at the top of the organization, at the board and the staff level, you have to, you have to create the mindset that this has value because if you invest even some time up front, it pays huge dividends for your ability to pursue your mission. So, Lindsay, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time. And um, I can also say that Lindsay is a friend and a colleague, and I have seen her at work, and uh, she knows her stuff. So thanks very much, Lindsay, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Joan. So it is, uh, it is time to go. And... Um, you know, for, for those of you who have listened to me or read any of my stuff, I think you have a pretty good sense that I try to do what I can to make resources available to board and staff leaders of nonprofits. I don't see them as separate groups. Um, I like to work to help people feel less overwhelmed and alone. 
So you can find free resources at my blog at joangary.com. My name is spelled with two R's. And we have a growing inventory of podcast topics. So zip on over to iTunes and take a look at the topics and see if there are particular ones that will help you with something you're struggling with currently. Um, I have written a book. You can grab a free chapter of it over at nonprofitsarmessy.com. Um, feel free to pick up a copy. Um, could make a really good gift for your staff or board for the holidays. I also think you could do a PDF of a chapter, would make a really good pre-read for a board meeting or a retreat. And if you're interested in any kind of bulk copies for your staff or your board, you can contact us at Cindy, C-I-N-D-Y, at joangary.com. Last but not least, um, I am completely um, committed to helping small nonprofits who can afford neither consultants or coaches. And we have started a, um, a resource for that cohort at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And you can go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com to learn more. So till next time, thank you again for all the work that you do. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.